welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Thank you for calling us here to worship and to enjoy your presence. And Lord, we do enjoy your presence. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And we have tasted and seen that you are good. And yet, Lord, as we enter your presence, we're more and more aware of our sin. We're aware that we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have all followed way too much in our own devices and desires of our own hearts. We know that we have offended your holy law. We know that we've offended your holy law by leaving some things undone that ought to be done and by doing things that ought not to be done. And so, Lord, we ask that you would spare us by the mercy of Christ, that, that through the death of your Son, the blood of your Son, his work on the cross for us, that you would uh, cleanse us of our sins. Lord, we pray that you'd restore us as we repent. Lord, we pray that according to your promise in Jesus, that we would have fullness of life, forgiveness of sins, and new freedom from those sins. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, that you would from here on help us to live a godly and righteous and sober life to the glory of your holy name. We pray, Lord, that you would have mercy on those who are here who do not yet know you and that through the preaching of the word they would come to know you. Lord, we pray that you would give the gift of faith, that you would give the gift of the new birth, that you would cause some that are spiritually orphans to become your sons and daughters today through the preaching of the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word, and Lord, that you would make our hearts good soil for the seed of the gospel, that the gospel would not be plucked out of our hearts this morning, or it wouldn't be overrun by the cares of this world, but that it would be good soil, that your spirit would cause your word to, to come alive in us. Help us, Lord, to actively listen by faith to the teachings of your apostle James in this book. We ask, Lord, that you would bless Lorian as well. Um, as she's working on translation. Lord, we pray that you would give her safety. We pray, Lord, that you give her wisdom. We pray that you give her peace and joy. We thank you for her partnership with us in the mission. We pray, Lord, that you'd meet all of her expenses, Lord. Help us in this room to know if that's something you'd have us to do. Lord, we pray for her move, Lord. We pray that that would go well. We pray that you would give her a place that's, that's good to minister from. And we pray, Lord, that all the distractions of house and home and, and where to live and, and, and money and all that would be taken away so she can focus on the mission that she has there. And we thank you for her. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. And all God's people say, Amen. So you guys had an extra hour of sleep, and you guys are much more perky, and that's wonderful. And I just want you to know that that feeling you have right now is available all the time if you would sleep an extra hour. It's amazing. It's amazing what sleep will do. Um, we, uh, we have the church library. Uh, my wife uh, sets up the church library, and I just wanted to like, point out a few things that you could take. We would love for every one of you to like, take a book to, to read and to grow during the week. It's it maximizes God's work in your life if you're reading good books throughout the week. And, um, and this is a great book, especially for this week. It's Sophie and the Heidelberg Cat. Okay, so this is a book about the Heidelberg Catechism, but it, it, done through a conversation with this girl and a cat about what the chief end of man is. This is an amazing thing. I mean, we live in a good time that things like this are available. So that's available there. You're probably going to fight over that one. 
Um, we also have, uh, my wife was just reading this book by Sam Crabtree, Parenting with Loving Correction. Super good book on parenting that's back there. Um, we also have these books. Now, these you don't have to check out. These are these little mini books that are done by CCEF, and they're on issues like, you know, there's one on anger and one on suffering and one on pornography and one on uh, cutting and things like that. You don't have to check these out because these are more sensitive issues. You just like swing by and just be like, and walk away with it. You don't have to return it. So these are ways for you to deal with some of those issues that, that you might not want to talk to anybody about, but could be super helpful. So let me give these um, to her here. Yeah, you can handle it. Tosh, thanks. Good deal. All right. So we had a good week this week. Uh, what, hol- what holiday did you all celebrate? Mm, that's the good answer. You, ah, the pagans over there. Halloween. Um, no, it's funny. You guys are like, I don't know if I should say. We had a really good time at Sun City Gardens on Wednesday. We went there and trick-or-treated. And uh, we went, they all like, kind of lined up at their doors. There's a lady right there lined up at her door. And they were all lined up at their doors, and we just like mobbed this place. It was like almost every parent that has a small kid came, and some of them that don't have kids came. And it was just great. It was like this crazy flash mob type thing that we did to this place. And the joy there was incredible. And so super thankful for all you guys that turned out. Um, we'll be back there again um, for caroling. So we'll bring our gang again and light that place up. Um, if you'd like to be involved in this during the week, though, every Wednesday, Elisa, who's going to raise her hand there, she's visiting door-to-door there, um, a certain group of people that want visitation, and you could go with her. Bring your kids, because it really does brighten that place up when that happens. So, um, But yeah, this week was Reformation, Re- Reformation Day. So October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses or disagreements that he had with the Catholic Church at that time on the church door in Wittenberg. It wasn't vandalism. That was like their bulletin board. And he put up the issues there. It wasn't meaning to start a reformation. It did start a reformation. And it's kind of a cool week for us to be in this passage because this passage is about the role of works with faith. And one of the charges of the Reformation, you know, there were the five solas, and one of them was faith alone. That that the five solas of the Reformation were that we are saved by grace alone, sola gratia. We're saved by faith alone, sola fide. We're saved, we're, we, we know what we know about God through scripture alone, sola scriptura. We are, all this is for God's glory alone, sola deo gloria. And we are saved through Christ alone, solos Christus. So those are like the five solas, right? And so when you read this passage, when Vanessa was reading this passage earlier, you might think, well, like, how does that square with what we just read in James? Some have taken this passage in James to dispute the teaching that we're saved by faith in Christ alone. Some teach that James is saying that we have to, we're saved by a combination of faith plus works, that we can't trust in Christ alone, but we should pay, place some of our trust in our own works. But guys, if you, on a closer inspection of James 2, you're going to find that it's not about whether you're saved by a combination of faith and works, it's about what kind of faith are you saved by. And James makes the point that we cannot be saved by a dead faith, a faith that doesn't do anything in our lives, a faith that doesn't make any changes in our lives. You look at verse 14, take a look at uh, James 2.14, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The question is, can that kind of faith save him? Can the kind of faith save him that is alone, that doesn't create any works in the life? And, and the implied answer is no. So when James talks about faith alone, he's not talking about Reformation-type faith alone. He's talking about a faith that's merely words, a faith that has no works. And a workless faith, guys, is a worthless faith. 
right? A workless faith is a worthless faith. James is really clear on that. He says in verse 20 that that kind of faith that doesn't produce any life change is useless. He says in verse 17 that it's dead. And he says in verse 14, it will not save you. Couldn't be more clear about this, right? A faith that doesn't create any life change is useless, dead, and won't save. A workless faith is a worthless faith. And so James wants to challenge a claim that's very alive in the church today, and the claim is that real saving faith can exist in your life without changing your life, without creating any deeds of love and obedience. And James writes this with a lot of passion. You sense the passion, right? I don't think James did anything without passion. But this section is very passionate, and the reason is James is trying to avoid this tragedy, which happens even in the church today, which is people who claim to have a kind of faith, with air quotes there, that has no works. And James is saying, that won't save you. There's a lot of people in our culture that have a faith that's in words only, no life change, and that faith will not save you. Um, So this section is really not about faith versus works. It's about living, saving faith versus dead, useless faith. That's what he's doing here in this passage. He says that workless faith is ineffective. Take a look at verse 15. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacks in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is a pretty offensive example, isn't it? Can you imagine somebody you saw and they're, they're poorly clothed, this is they're in rags, or they're basically naked, they have no clothing, right? And they don't have food even for today. They don't have the food they need for a meal today, not that they don't have a full fridge. They don't have food for now. And you, and you say to them, oh yeah, no, I hear you, and you kind of hurt them out, and you go like, hey, go in peace, be warm and be filled. Give them a little side rub like that. It's offensive, Right? It's offensive. It's not only ineffective, but it's offensive. And it, our faith, if it's just words, is also similarly offensive. You see this today, you know, there's a real backlash against thoughts and prayers, right? There's a real backlash against saying thoughts and prayers. Oh, thoughts and prayers, right? And the reason is, is because, just like James is saying here, is that faith without works, no works don't mean anything. Uh, the missionary and abolitionist David Livingston, the explorer, the David Livingston, I presume, guy, he said that sympathy is, not, is no substitute for action. Amen? Sympathy is no substitute for action. And sometimes we can see people in need, and we do do this, and I know this is convicting. You'll see people that are in need, you know, at the gas station, wherever, and you'll try and justify your lack of help. And we do it in ways like this. We say, well, you know, there's lots of social programs that could help them. Or we say, you know, the guy's probably an addict. Or we'll say, ah, he's probably mentally ill. Ah, it's probably been irresponsible. I don't want to encourage that. And basically what that is, is we're saying, go in peace, be warm, and be filled. And James says, what good is that? Real faith effectively alleviates the sufferings of others. And I'm not saying to give people cash or things like that. I'm not saying that. But it's gotten colder. might be good to have a sleeping bag in your, ba- in your, in your car. Hand them that. There is no harm going to be done to a homeless person by giving them a sleeping bag. Okay? They're not going to misuse that in some way. Right? Um, workless faith is invisible. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. It's kind of like, well, your gift is faith, your gift is works, mine's faith. You know, like, let's just divide this up. He says, you have faith. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Uh, But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. See, the thing in that passage is, you can't show faith without works. 
You know, faith is something internal, right? If there's no works to show it, there's no way to, to show someone your faith without works. It's, it's impossible to do, right? So faith that's invisible, guys, without actions and love is not real faith. Invisible faith isn't faith. And, you know, one of the things that hits close to home is we all probably have family members and friends that at one time prayed a prayer of salvation. You know, maybe they got baptized or something like that. And now they basically live like the devil. Or they just live in a way that it gives no evidence of any Christianity. They're not involved in the church, no evangelism, no anything, no Bible reading. And we go, you know, I'm sure they're fine. James would say, we have no reason to believe they're saved. And I know that's very controversial in our area. And I know that if you have somebody in your life that fits that description, that's controversial. Because you want to hope against hope. Oh, I'm sure they're fine. I'm sure they're fine. Guys, we have no reason to believe they're fine. That's what James is saying here. He's saying an invisible faith isn't a real faith. A real faith can be seen and not just heard. Look at verse 18. The second half, he says, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Real faith is demonstrated by life change. Third, he says that workless faith is indistinguishable. This is a fun one, verse 19. Do you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's great sarcasm there, right? He's like, He's like, oh, oh, you have no works, but you have good theology? That's great. You have demon faith. That's nice little demon faith you have. You know, it's like it's total sarcasm, right? And it's a good point, guys, because really the demons would be the best example of having great theology and no works, right? Who were, who were the ones that most accurately announced the Messiah when he came, besides John the Baptist? Constantly the demons. You know, you're the son of the Most High. You're the Holy One. You're the Messiah. Like, they knew. But, they were, but they're, they're damned, right? Because they have verbal profession only, guys. Real faith has to be more than an intellectual assent. And I think that's very important for people like us that care a lot about theology and care a lot about having right doctrine is to know that right doctrine doesn't save you. It's not enough to save you. Classically, there have been three ways to talk about belief. There's notitia, which is knowledge. There's assensus, which is intellectual assent. And then there's fiducia, which is active trust. And they're like this. So you could illustrate it with a chair. So you could say there's a kind of faith that knows things about Jesus, right? You know things about God. Just like I know this is a chair. That's knowledge. That's notitia. That's a type of belief. And there's lots of people in the culture that can tell you all kinds of things about Jesus. They know him. They heard him. Not saving, right? Another level would um, would be a census, which is intellectual assent, where I go, you know what? Not only is this a chair, but any one of you guys could sit in this and you'd be fine. This will hold you. Okay, that's intellectual assent. A lot of people in our culture that have that, right? That's not saving. That's demon level. Demon level, I know he's the Messiah. I know if somebody sat here, they'd be held. I know if they trust in Jesus, you'd be saved. I know he'd change your life. All that, that's just assent. That's demon level faith. And then the final level of faith is what? It's fiducia, which is active trust. And that is, I sit in it. I sit in it completely. I rest completely in Jesus. And that kind of faith changes your life. That's the only kind of faith that's saving. That's the only kind of faith that's saving is active trust. Faith that doesn't create works of love and obedience isn't saving faith. Real faith always produces works in life. I have this slide. Oh, it's already up. That's amazing. Okay. Here are a few ways that people look at salvation. The first one is is that you take the arrow as being produces. So one, one belief would be your works produce or give you salvation. Okay, that's not Christianity. That's pretty easy to spot as not being about Christianity because there's no Christ in the whole equation, right? The second one, faith, faith in Christ, 
plus your works produces salvation. Faith plus works earns you salvation. That's actually not Christianity. It's easily mistaken as Christianity. That's called legalism. Faith plus works earns salvation. There's another one. Faith produces sal- faith without works. Faith alone produces salvation alone. Okay? That you have faith, and that faith in Christ gives you salvation, but that salvation doesn't have what the fourth one has, right? There's no works there. That's called antinomianism. Nomian means law. So it's anti-law. So it's to say that, you know, I can trust in Christ, I can be saved, and never follow his law. That's also not Christianity. That's antinomianism. And then the fourth one, that's the gospel. Faith alone saves us, and faith also produces works in life. Do you see how works are on the other side of the equation? They're not earning salvation, but they're produced by faith, and they come with salvation. I think this is pretty easy to understand, but this is something that our hearts tend to against over and over again. We always want to default to either legalism or antinomianism. A lot of people default to legalism. That's, that's one that's very easy to fa- fall into. And, but a lot of them are falling into antinomianism too. And so James gives us actually two examples in this passage of what true saving faith looks like, what number four looks like in two people's lives. But before we get there, we have to get into the weeds a little bit. And I would just ask you to just try to concentrate, okay? You guys had an extra hour, so this is like the perfect Sunday to do this, okay? But before we get into it, we have to deal with something that looks like a contradiction between James and Paul. So in verse 24, take a look at it. It says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith only. Do you see that? If you turn to Romans 3.28, is a very similar thing that Paul says with a big difference. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, okay? They look like a contradiction. James is saying a person's justified by works and faith. Uh, Paul's saying we're justified by faith alone. It looks like a contradiction. So you might ask, did James and Paul disagree on the gospel? Did they disagree on the gospel? And this is a really important question to ask. And was James teaching number two, faith plus works equals salvation, and was Paul either teaching three, salvation, uh, faith gives you salvation with no works, or was he teaching faith uh, gives you salvation and works. Like, did they have a disagreement in the gospel? You might ask yourself, could they have disagreed? Well, if all we have here in the New Testament is a bunch of Christian letters from the first century, then of course they could contradict. You know, of course they could have, they could be developing their theology and they could have differences and we could have caught them at different places in their development. Guys, but we believe the New Testament is actually the Word of God. And if it's the Word of God, then there's going to be no contradiction there. We also know, though, guys, is that Paul and James met. In Galatians 2, it talks about the meeting, talking about the gospel to each other, and they agreed. In, G- in Galatians 2, they, James and Paul actually met, and they agreed. They agreed on four, that it's faith alone that saves us and also produces works. So what's going on here? Well, James um, may be correcting a distortion of Paul's teaching that he's hearing. He's not correcting Paul, but he may be correcting a distortion that he had heard of Paul's teaching. Um, James... Um, Paul actually had to do the same thing. We see that in in Romans and in other books where he had to correct people thinking that he was saying three, that faith gives salvation that doesn't have works, right? Paul had to correct that kind of thing all the time. James was also misunderstood at times too. James was often misunderstood by his followers as being teaching number two, faith plus works equals salvation. We see that in Galatians 2. It says that some people came down from James and they were pressuring Peter to compromise the gospel. They weren't bringing James's teaching, 
They were bringing a distortion of the teaching. And so these guys were constantly needing to correct people that didn't understand the gospel. People would fall into legalism or they'd fall into antinomianism and, and they would fall away from the gospel. Um, the second century African preacher Tertullian said this, Just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between these two opposite errors. Isn't that great? He said, just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between these two opposite errors. And the two opposite errors are legalism, that somehow my works also save me, or antinomianism, that works are unnecessary to saving faith. And so everybody's prone, guys, to go one direction or the other, and we're amazingly prone to do both in different areas in our lives. In some areas, we can be quite legalistic. And then in other areas, being quite antinomian. It's something where we're constantly needing to check ourselves and see, are we believing the true gospel? We alternate between these. So James and Paul aren't contradicting. Paul is defending the gospel against legalism, while James is defending the gospel in here against antinomianism. And together, they're like kind of killing the two thieves of the gospel, right? And that's super important to do. So how do you reconcile it? James 2, I'm almost done with the hard part. James 2, uh, 24 and Romans 3, 28. Well, it must be that they're using justify in a different sense. And the word justify in Greek can be taken in two different senses. So in, in Paul, justification in that passage means our legal standing before God. And we have a righteous legal standing before God that we receive by faith alone, where we're seen as righteous in Christ. James, though, is using justify in the sense of demonstrate. So that when they did these works, they were demonstrating that they were justified. They were demonstrating that they were truly saved. So the difference is declaration of God saying, you're righteous. We get that by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And James talking about how our salvation is demonstrated in good works. And so that's what's going on there. And that fits really well with like verse 18 where he says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works, right? It's a demonstration. These works are demonstrating their salvation. It also fits really well with, we're going to get to in a sec, the Abraham example, because we know that Abraham was not saved when he offered Isaac on that mountain. We know that he was saved decades before. We know that from uh, Genesis 15, 6, that he believed God and was counted him as righteousness. That happened decades before he offered Isaac on the mountain. So offering Isaac on the mountain was a demonstration of the faith he had had for decades. It was like uh, verse 22 says, it was completing or, or the fruit of his faith. So we're saved by faith alone, but true saving faith in Christ always has evidences. It always has evidences. It always changes your life. And the whole Bible teaches this. I love the way the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it. It's Reformation Week, guys. Don't kill me. I love this. Okay, let's, let's do that slide real quick. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way, for thus received and resting on Christ in his righteousness, for, uh, sorry, faith thus received and resting on Christ for his righteousness is alone the instrument of justification. That's the thing that makes us right before God. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. So we're saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. Why is that faith never alone? That faith is never alone, guys, because true saving faith unites us to Jesus. True saving faith, when you came to trust in Christ, what happened was spiritually by the Holy Spirit, you were united to Christ. You were united to Christ such that God now sees you as righteous 
as holy, just like Christ, because you're in Christ. You got united to Christ. And you know what else happens when you're united to Christ? His life flows into your life. Isn't that amazing? So they go together. I'm be righteous by faith, but I'm also going to do deeds by faith because I'm connected to Jesus, and his life flows through me. You can't get one without the other, okay? You can't get one without the other. You, there's no way, if you're united to Christ, that you can be seen as anything but righteous before God. And there's no way if you're united with Christ that you can't help but actually have his life flow through you. And if his life isn't flowing through you, he's going to discipline you, he's going to make your life really difficult, and he's going to do whatever it takes to get Jesus' life flowing through you. But it's going to happen, guys. If you don't have Jesus' life in you, then you don't have Jesus' righteousness covering you. There's no way. They come together, they're a package deal. Both come by faith alone in Christ. So you might ask the question, well, what do I do if my faith is ineffective, invisible, indistinguishable, what if I have workless, worthless faith? How do I change? You know, and remember back to the diagram, number four, where do works come from? Turns out that works don't come from just trying harder to do works. Where do they come from? Where do the works come from? They come from faith, right? It's faith that gives us works. And so what we need is faith if we're going to have the works that God requires. The more you trust God, the more you're going to obey him. And James gives us two great examples. Take a look at the text where he gives us Abraham and he gives us Rahab to talk about true saving faith that worked. Okay? And it's cool that he gives these two examples because you got like one's a Jew, right? Abraham, first Jew. And then you've got one Gentile, Rahab. You've got one man, you've got one woman. You've got one new believer, Rahab. You've got one seasoned believer. He's like a hundred, okay? Um, you've got Old Testament examples given to New Testament people. So what's he saying here? There's one way to be saved. There's one way to be saved. It's by grace through faith in the Messiah, and that that salvation changes your life. And you might be here, you might think, you know what? I used to have faith like this. Like, I read James. You guys ever take out an old journal? Those guys have been believers a while. You ever take an old journal? And I know some of you guys, you like journal for a few days, and then you like stop and then you'll have to buy a new journal because there's a gap and it's pathetic. And maybe you rip the pages out or throw it away. It's really hard. How do I deal with this, you know? And then every time you go through like a spiritual renewal, you get a new journal. You're like, all right, it's time for the new journal, you know? You ever read the old journals and be like, dang, that guy was saved. You ever do that? You ever look at like your old journal entries and think like, now that guy knew the Lord. And, and, it, and it convicts you, right? Because you're thinking like, although we are our most Christian in our journals probably, but um, have you ever felt like that? You might be here this morning and be thinking, you know what? I used to have faith like that, but I feel like my faith is deadened. And that happens. Be a Christian a long time and your faith just starts to deaden. Sometimes people talk about new believers and go like, oh yeah, new believers, they have all this fire. And then later, well, you know, you'll just kind of deaden out. You're not supposed to. That's not, it's sanctification. It's supposed to get better. That's supposed to deaden out, right? Most on fire people should be the ones that know them the longest. But you might be here and you might be looking back on kind of the good old days when you really felt God's presence and power. What should you do? Well, works come from faith. Perhaps your faith has like shifted from the Lord to something else. That was the danger for Abraham. Look at verse 21. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified, or his salvation demonstrated, by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Abraham, guys, in Genesis 22, was tested by God. God told him to offer his only son as a burnt sacrifice up on a mountain. Now, some background needed on that. 
About 40 years earlier, God had come to Abraham and Ur, called them out of that, called them to the promised land, and he told them, I'm going to make you a great nation. Problem was, he didn't have any kids. He didn't have any kids. Abraham and Sarah were childless. And so God kept making this promise, but he made him wait a long time for a son. Finally, God gave Abraham a son through Sarah, and they named him Isaac, which means basically son of laughter. This was Abraham's joy. Okay, This kid, he'd waited forever. He's like a combination of like grandparent and parent because he's so old. He could be like the great-grandparent. So this is like, he, this, Isaac is everything to this guy. This is how God is going to fulfill his promises. And there was a real danger to Abraham's faith in that. There was a danger that Abraham would shift his faith from the Lord to Isaac. There was a danger that Isaac would become Abraham's idol. You guys know an idol is a good thing that can become an ultimate thing. It can be something that's a very good thing in your life and you make it an ultimate thing. Something that you trust in, the Lord, trust in other than the Lord for your joy and peace and hope. And so Abraham could have made Isaac the ultimate thing in his life, his idol, his true God, the one he really put his faith in. And so God tests him. He tests his faith, and he tells him to offer Isaac on the mountain. Now, this is not condoning human sacrifice. None of you guys should go out and sacrifice your children after hearing this. That's the disclaimer. You never know. People are crazy. But God was testing Abraham, and he was freeing him from his idolatry. Take a look at Genesis 22.3. You've got to see the story. It's amazing. It says this. So Abraham rose early in the morning, Genesis 22.3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose, and he went to the place of which the Lord had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said to him, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the, the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And they went, both of them together. And when they came to the place of which the God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid wood in order and bound his son Isaac and laid, on him, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Abraham's faith, guys, was passed the test. He passed the test. God said to him in verse 12, Now I know that you fear God because you not withhold your son, your only son from me. Uh, Abraham had faith in the Lord because the Lord had already shown himself faithful for decades. That's one of the things to realize about this story. God had shown himself faithful for decades. He didn't know how this was all going to turn out, but he knew that the Lord would still fulfill his promises. In Hebrews 11, it says that Abraham considered that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead of which figuratively he received him back. He didn't know how God was going to do this, but he trusted him. Abraham's trusting, saving faith allowed him to give up the one thing he never thought he could. 
He was able to give up the one thing he never thought he could. And Abraham was actually able to receive Isaac back from the Lord, but as a gift from the Lord, not as Abraham's God. Isaac was really, it was really in danger that Isaac would be Abraham's God. Now he could be Abraham's gift from the Lord. Some of you may be like Abraham. You've walked with the Lord for a long time, but you've kind of reached a wall. You're no longer experiencing God's presence and power like you used to, right? You talk about the good old days. You talk about when you were really on fire for the Lord. It could be because like Abraham, you have a rival God. You have someone or something that you've put your faith in for your peace and your security and your comfort. Um, An idol, guys, can be a good thing that's become an ultimate thing. I mean, it can be something that's good, that's taken away your energy and your time and your affection and your attention from the Lord. It can be very good things like family, marriage. I think sometimes there's a, a threat with Christians that family, marriage, family, kids become our gods, right? I'm not saying to sacrifice them, okay? That's not the point. But they can take that away. They can take the time and the energy and affection away from the Lord. Um, Our work, um, the approval of others. You know, sometimes when you're early Christian, you share in the gospel with everybody, and then you start to realize, you know what? Like, more than half of these people don't want to hear it, right? And so you start to back down because human approval is your idol, or your hobbies, or your kids' sports, or your leisure, or your health, You know, some people sacrifice their time with the Lord to be at the gym for excessive amounts of time. Maybe it's your money, you know. Maybe it's you're so into money management that it's like that's your deal, you know. That's your deal, you know. Faithfully using your money has become an idol to you. Or maybe it's your comfort or your pleasure. But it's things that have taken your focus away and you've put your faith in them instead of the Lord. Something in your life, guys, this is a good test. Something in your life that you say to the Lord, Lord, reign in my life, but don't touch that. You have something like that in your life? You're like, God, have it all. I surrender, but not that. That would be Abraham's thing, right? That's your idol. That's your real God. It might be an idol that's actually sinful, that you look to for happiness. Maybe it's an illicit relationship, or it's a medicating substance, or maybe it's a secret habit, or something like that. But like Abraham, guys, your faith is now being brought to a place of testing today. And the Lord is telling you to take the time to surrender your rival God. Surrender, surrender your rival idol, that person or thing that you're trusting in more than God for your peace and security and hope and joy. The thing you run to when you need a Savior right? Like Abraham, guys, you've known the Lord long enough to know that you can trust him, just like Abraham, right? Real faith, guys, is trusting God enough to do what he says and to believe that he's faithful and he'll take care of it. Another reason to to trust the Lord that Abraham didn't have, that we have, we actually have more of a reason to trust than Abraham. Why? Because we have seen the ultimate son of Abraham, right? Jesus Christ is the better Isaac, Jesus Christ is the only son of God the Father. He is the son of laughter. He is God the Father's everything. And here's the amazing thing, guys. On the cross, God the Father gave up his own son, his only son, his son of laughter, his everything for you. He offered him up on the mountain for you, for your sin, for your salvation. And as we look at the cross, it's so cool because as we look at the cross, we can say the same thing that God said to Abraham. We can say back to God, now I know that you love me, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Right? Now we know. And now we know we can trust him with anything. There's, there's nothing we can't surrender to a love like that. 
Maybe you're in a different place. Maybe you've never really even had saving faith. Maybe you look at your life and you say, okay, well, if that's what faith is, I've never had it. I've never had living, saving faith before. At best, maybe I had dead faith. You need to hear the story of Rahab. Look at verse 24. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works in the sense that her salvation was demonstrated when she received the messengers and sent them by another way? This is a different kind of story. This is 500 years later, right? So um, what's going on here, about 1500 BC, she's a prostitute in a Canaanite city called Jericho. And God's people have been forced to wander for 40 years. It's their own fault. They had to do laps for 40 years. Finally, they're able to enter into the promised land. And one of the first places they come to is this fortified city, Jericho. It's like, how do we do this? This is crazy. This is gigantic, right? So they send some spies in. Spies go in, check out the city. Word gets out. Spies are there. They're looking for him. Rahab hides him. This prostitute hides these uh, Jewish spies and actually helps them get out of the city. Um, And Rahab, guys, she protects these spies and she helps them escape. Why does she do this? Well, the reason why she did this is because Rahab knew what other people in the city didn't know or they weren't willing to accept, which was that that city and that whole way of life was destined for destruction very soon. Very soon, that whole city was going to be destroyed. Her whole way of life was going to be destroyed. God opened her eyes to that. Um, The city Rahab lived in was about to be judged and destroyed. She knew this because of news of other cities having done this. And so she she knew that her way of life was a path of destruction. Rahab knew that she had to leave her old life if she was going to escape the judgment of God. That's the crossroads she was at. And time was running out. And so Rahab chose the Lord and chose the Lord's people so that she could enter into the promised land. And so when the day of judgment came, remember they go around Jericho multiple times, and then the walls come down, and there's a raid, and the whole city is destroyed, and the people are slaughtered. What happened? You guys remember? Rahab's house, who was in the wall, was the only thing standing. Like the whole wall is destroyed, and her little house is left standing. Do you remember why? The spies had told her to hang a scarlet cord in her window. And that if she were to put this scarlet cord in her window, that her house wouldn't be destroyed and she'd be spared. Why do you think they picked that? Why do you think these Jewish people, they had just left Egypt, you know, 40 years before, why do you think they would have picked for her to put a scarlet cord in her window? What do you think they were thinking of? They were thinking of the Passover, right? They were thinking of the Exodus. You remember what happened? They were in, they were also in a city that was marked for destruction, right? They were in a city in Egypt marked for destruction. God was going to kill all the firstborn. All havoc was going to break out. And God told them, if you will take this blood, the blood of a Passover lamb, and put it on your doorposts, you'll be spared, right? And so Rahab took the same kind of action. She She put this cord there, and so that when all the rubble of the city was there, she was left to crawl out of that rubble and come and enjoy the, the, the new land, the promised land with God's people. By, Rah- by, by faith, Rahab took refuge under the same blood that spared the Jews from judgment in Egypt. Isn't that cool? And that blood is ultimately who? That blood is ultimately Jesus the Messiah, the true Passover lamb, the one in which we can take refuge in. And because of Rahab's faith, the Lord passed over Rahab when he judged the whole city. Uh, but here's the, one of the things you notice about Rahab's life is when she got that faith, this is when she first got the faith, she had some bridges to burn with her old life, right? And that's what she did when she hid these spies. That's an act of treason against her city, right? That's a break with her whole way of life. She gets caught hiding these spies. She's dead. But by faith, guys, she burned the bridge to her old way of life so that she could have a new way of life with God's people, right? 
How does that relate to us? We also live in a city headed for destruction. This whole world is like Jericho in that sense. It's a city headed for destruction. The Lord is offering a way of escape, though. If you, like Rahab, will take refuge under the blood of Christ, when the judgment comes, God will pass over you, like he passed over the Jews, like he passed over Rahab, in the judgment, and you'll be spared from the judgment your sins deserve by the blood of Jesus. And like Rahab, when all the rubble settles in this world, you will emerge and enjoy the true promised land in the world to come. Like Rahab, though, guys, we have some bridges to burn. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to burn the bridge with your old life. That's just normal actions of faith. That's what faith does, right? Rahab could no longer prostitute herself to the sins of her city. One of the things we think sometimes as Christians is that we can be half in with Jesus and still, in some sense, prostitute ourselves to the sins of of our culture, and she knew that that couldn't happen any longer. Like the old song says, I have decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. That's what faith does. The Lord's Supper, guys, reminds us of Jesus, the true Passover lamb, right? As we take the cup, it represents his blood, that blood that covers us so that the judgment of God will pass over us. As we take the bread, which is gluten-free, by the way, if you take the bread, it reminds us of the broken body of Jesus and that he is the one who has saved us from all of our sins. He is the one, guys, that we've taken shelter under him, under his blood, and he is the one that we trust in. For the world to come. And so if that's you, if you're trusting in Jesus today like Rahab, if you're trusting in Jesus today like Abraham, then I'd ask you to come forward and take this and we'll remember the amazing love of Jesus, his costly obedience. Because guys, you are saved by works. You're saved by Jesus's works. There was a costly obedience to the cross, right? And as we remember it, then we become more willing to have a costly obedience in return. Right? And as we take the cup and the bread, we also remember the love of the Father who gave his only son so that we could be sons and daughters. And so please take this. If it's your hope, even if you've had a, a week, there's been idols and things in your life, confess those to the Lord, turn from those, and then come and have your faith fed here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you've not only given us a faith that trusts in your son for righteousness, that trusts in your son for the covering of his blood, that trusts in your son that our record has been exchanged for his perfect record, but you've also given us a faith that's changed us, that's given us new life, that's given us a desire to, to love and serve you and to love and serve our neighbors. And we just pray, Lord, that you would take this passage from James and you would stir that up in us. Lord, help us to lean in hard to faith in Jesus, to change the way we actually live. Lord, help us to believe in the sanctifying power of your blood, of your son's blood, as much as we believe in the saving power of it. And we pray, Lord, that you would, for anyone that's here that does not have true saving faith, Lord, we pray that you would cause them to flee to Jesus today. That even as we sing, that song, I've decided to follow Jesus, that there'd be some here that would decide to follow Jesus here because you had given them true saving faith today. We pray that you would do that, Lord. We pray we would give you all the glory for that. We pray for those who are here that, that 
maybe are in the first category and just don't see much works in their life, um, but desperately love your son, we pray, Lord, that you would help them to, to live in a way of power. And we pray, Lord, that they would reach out to other people in this church, that they would take hold of the means you've given to truly be transformed. We love you, Lord. We pray that you give us lives that look like we love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.